Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is episode 209. And I'm really excited about this week's show where Molly and I interview music industry legend Rick Barker. And you might actually know him from being the former manager of Taylor Swift. That's sort of his big claim to fame. And believe it or not, he actually helped launch her musical career using a lot of the same strategies that he's going to talk about here with relation to social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. But doing it on older platforms where a lot of the same principles apply. So in this episode, he'll be going through a lot of the strategies that he teaches new musicians, such as the virtual tip jar, what exactly is a look-alike audience on Instagram, and he'll talk a little bit more about, obviously, his background, how he got started in the music industry, and what his real superpower is to be able to stick out in a very crowded space. And obviously, the music space is one of those spaces, which is a highly sophisticated market. So really glad to have Rick on the show this week, and take a listen. So yeah, Rick, tell us about you. What do you do? What have you done? <laughs> Your story is incredible. <laughs> So what I always try to share with people in the beginning of any presentation I do, any interview that I do, is I went from living homeless on the streets of Los Angeles in the late 80s, strung out on crack cocaine, to launching one of the biggest stars in the world. And one of the reasons that I share that story is to let people know that your past definitely does not define your future if you don't want it to. And I feel that's a lot of why when I asked God to let me die and he didn't, I think that's a lot of the reason why I'm still here is just kind of that message of hope. But I was the product of divorced parents. I went to three different high schools. My sophomore year, I was living in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I know you're from Kentucky, Molly. I was raised in the South as well. And I went to three different high schools. So sophomore year, the jocks and the Christians took me in. So I played soccer and went to church. Same thing my junior year. Moved to California my senior year and the stoners took me in. And basically, I was very influenced by the people that I was around. One thing led to another, and I ended up quitting high school and just taking a journey that would ultimately shape the rest of my life. At the time, I felt negatively, but in the long run, it turned out to be positively. When I got sober, I always wanted to be in radio. That was my passion. That was my dream. You have a radio voice, so... Thank you. Thank you. It's the only one I got. One of the best pipes on this podcast, by the way. Thank you. Ah! Yes. Second to yours and third to Molly's. (laughs) Um, Jeez. That's how I grew up. I grew up listening to Rick Dees and Casey Kasem. I've always loved music, but I didn't have the patience to learn an instrument. I didn't have the financial means to take lessons, but I always 
was a, a natural promoter. I always loved to promote other people's things. So when I got sober, I heard an ad on the radio that said, do your friends say you have a voice for radio? Come to the Columbia School of Broadcasting's free seminar and we'll show those. you blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I go into this thing and I'm listening to these guys and they're talking about internships. And I asked a question that wasn't a real popular question. I said, if you guys are so good, why are none of you on the radio and why haven't I heard of you? And I was politely asked to leave and I did. <laughs> but I remembered them talking about internships. So that year, I went out and I looked for my own internships. I was in Los Angeles at the time. I was calling, you know, KISS FM, Power 106, KLOS, KMET, all these great radio stations. And the week of Christmas, I got a call from KISS FM that said, listen, would you like to answer phones? We have people going on holiday. Would you come in and answer the phones? I absolutely agreed to do that. That week, the Gulf War started. So they came to me and they're like, okay, we need you to go in, watch the television, copy down everything that the news people are saying, and then we're going to have you come in and deliver the news. Wow. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my big break. <laughs> so I write so everything cool. down. I run in, I go to deliver the news and I'm like, well, I'm Rick Barker with the news. And I tried to sound like those radio <laughs> disc jockeys that sound like they're about to puke all the time. And what I realized at that point was I absolutely sucked but they loved my enthusiasm, and I learned a very valuable lesson at that point is don't try to be something that you're not. Mm -hmm. Just be yourself. So they invited me to drive around L.A., pulling people over, giving away money. I ended up meeting some folks from Santa Barbara. I ended up getting my first job offer to come to Santa Barbara, California to do radio. And this was less than a year after getting sober. After being here, I went to Santa Barbara, decided that I could be a big fish in a small pond and didn't chase the radio jobs that were being offered for more money. I did my whole entire radio career, all 15 years in Santa Barbara. I've done every English speaking format, including sports talk. I spent most of my time at a classic rock station. And in 2001, I built a country station and that was my first taste into country music. And I started asking a lot of questions. I'm that guy. It's like, I always tell people I'm never the smartest guy in the room, but I'm going to ask really good questions. Uh, I'm like a detective. I love asking questions. I love solving things based on the answers that I get. So I started asking questions about the industry and realized that artists were coming to town. They didn't get paid. I started asking other artists questions about how much it costs to run the bus, how much they paid for gas. So I ended up creating this paid radio tour, which was the first time that it had ever happened and helped launch bands like Sugarland and Little Big Town, who went on to win Grammys. But it got the attention of a gentleman by the name of Scott Borchetta, who had just started his own record company. And he called and he offered me a job as a promoter at a record company. And my wife immediately accepted the job on my behalf when she heard that I could make $85,000 a year doing one job instead of $75,000 a year doing three, and it came with insurance. So she accepted the position on my behalf, <laughs> and six months later, he sends me this little girl named Taylor Swift and says, teach her radio. You come from radio. We're going to be releasing her single next. Take her out on that little tour that you did. She's never really played out in front of an audience. Teach her that situation. She came to California. We spent 30 days together. That changed both of our lives. She wanted to learn. I wanted to teach. And six months later, her parents asked me to be her manager with zero management experience. Incredible. Wow. You know, isn't it odd that the three of us all started in this industry as interns? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Molly, you, myself, and, you know, I have relatives and a lot of people who always ask me, like, how do you get started? Like, how do you get to that level of success? Not that we're at this enormous level of success, but I mean, this podcast is pretty popular. Uh, hopefully it helps a lot of people, but your agency's doing okay. Molly's making a couple bucks. We're yeah. You know, all right. You know, you're doing all right, but you know, you started doing something for free and proved yourself on the job. And I find that fascinating, especially considering the level of success that you've now achieved. It all started with doing something for free. You know, you were working other jobs and all these other sorts of things, but I think 
kids these days, I hate to say kids these days, but sometimes that's lost in the mix here. I started as an intern at a radio station. Molly started as an intern at Digital Marketer. You started the same way. And that's how you get started. And I think that's the big question a lot of people say, like, oh, this is great. It's Rick Parker. You know, he was a former manager of Taylor Swift. I can't do what he does. Well, actually, you can. You got to start somewhere. And I think the internship thing is a really fascinating part of your story, as well as all the other stuff. You dealt with a lot of other things prior to that, which credit to you, Rick. I mean, man, it's been quite a life for you so far and, and even greater things coming. Yeah. Rick, what year was it that you first started working with Taylor? I started working with Taylor in 2004 on the record label side. And then when her parents had asked me to come on board as her management, what's interesting is my first answer was no. I told her dad, I said, not at all. I said, I'm not qualified to do this. And he said something to me that has stuck with me. He said, one, she believes in you. Two, you believe in her. And three, you're not afraid to ask questions. And a lot of people will look at not knowing as a weakness, not going out and getting the answer is the weakness with the tools that we have available today to get those answers. Now, to back up a second, one of the first jobs that I had when I got sober, I told you I'd played soccer and having multiple jobs while trying to live in Santa Barbara and pursue this radio career is I also coached girls high school soccer. And I tell people that in my early development at Taylor, I used more skills understanding the teenage female and how they communicate more than anything <laughs> that I learned utilizing you know, the music industry. I always tell people I speak teenage female. I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse, but it came in real handy when dealing with Taylor. And that's where I always tell people, it's like the little things that you do in your life those experiences can come back to benefit you. They may seem mundane at the time, but later on in life, you never know when you're going to get those opportunities. So when her dad came to me and he said that, and I agreed to take her on, Polestar Magazine chronicles this, but they asked Taylor, why did you choose Rick? He had zero experience. She said, well, I told him that I wanted a gold record and his answer was great. Let's go meet 500,000 people. And all I did was the math that said, look, if you sell 500,000 records, you get a gold record. And I saw the impact that she had on people. And at the time, the only platform that we had outside of the traditional get on stage, be at a show, be in concert, was this little platform called MySpace. So Mm, Taylor would get on every night and she would just talk to these kids and she would ask them questions like, what do you like about boys? Oh my gosh, that's what I like about boys. Our song, love story. Oh my gosh, he cheated on you. He cheated on Abigail. Should have said no, picture to burn. She carried on these conversations and then she wrote the stories of their life. So then when she ended up releasing her record back when it was records, she released her first CD. People flocked to the stores because she had built this relationship early on. She shared the music with them. And we used to get that a lot. People would come up to us. I remember Brad Paisley one time, he says, man, he says, I've never had an opening act where the audience sang all the songs. Because in radio, usually you release one song, it lasts for about a year. If it's doing well, they'll toss out a record. But what she did is she didn't keep anything a secret. She shared this music with people. They came out and sang. And he's like, aren't you afraid that People are going to get burned out, and we're like, Brad, there's 10,000 people singing songs, and he called it half a hit. She's got half a hit on the radio, but they know all of her music. We're like, we don't keep secrets. Too often, I think we like to hold on to everything and make it a surprise, but today with the internet, there are no surprises. We're dying to get people's attention, so that's what she did, and she said something to me. She said, Rick, I want to be the biggest star in the world. She said this at 15 years old. She said it at 16 years old. She said it at 17 years old. But she realized that the only way to do this was to go out and build these relationships. And that is what we have the power to do today. I remember when Facebook came around, (laughs) very funny story. So all of a sudden, one night, this Facebook post pops up. And I had no idea what Facebook was. Taylor had no idea what (laughs) Facebook was. But her fiddle player went to Belmont University. So she was a college student, and she had a Facebook account. And she's like, Rick, this guy just called you a fat A and said, here's Taylor's fat A manager who blocked us from getting autographs. And there was a picture of me with my arm out and I'm devastated. 
I said, I need to respond to this guy. I need to get to him. She said, well, you can't. You don't have a Facebook account. I said, then log me into your Facebook account because I need to talk to this kid. <laughs> so I go in and I send him a message and I said, hey, Matt, this is Rick Taylor's fat A manager. I would love to have a conversation with you. Here's my phone number. And I type in my phone number. I have no idea what's going to happen. Next thing you know, we're on the bus and the phone rings. And he's like, hello? I said, Matt? He says, yes. I said, this is Rick. I need to have a conversation with you. And I sit down and I explain to him. And what I shared with him was, is I said, Matt, I said, here's the deal. I have two options. We have to get from one place to the next. Then we have to get on a bus and it takes a long time. So I would always go out in front of the crowd and say, look, she's not going to be able to have time to sign autographs. I have two choices. I can either walk her around the back and you don't get to see her, or I can bring her through. You can take pictures. Let me walk her through, but do me a favor. Don't ask her for an autograph because then we have to do it for everyone and we don't have time. Do you all agree? Yes, yes, we all agree. Soon as I walk out, kids reaches over, hands her something to sign. I reach my arm out, picture snaps. It's all over the internet. Luckily, at that time, it was only out to college kids. But I reached out to him directly. He got back. Then he goes on and tells everyone on Facebook how cool I am. Because I reached out to him and explained to him the situation. And that's something that also stuck with Taylor and I. That the power to directly connect with the consumer, or in our world, the fan, was at our fingertips. All we had to do was use it. And that's what made this whole internet thing, as as we called it at the time, so special. Because while in the traditional world... If you hear it on radio, it must be the most popular thing out there. It must be the best artist in the world. But now with the internet, we're realizing there's no shortage of talented people. And the internet doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care what your gender is. It doesn't care how much you weigh. All it is is a vehicle for you to get your message in front of the world. If you choose to use it, she chose to use it. So she jumped all over. Her first YouTube video was teaching people how to tie her bracelet. I was gone from Taylor by the time Instagram came along. She turned it into Tumblr, but that's the one thing that I want to share is that you have the ability to perform to the world every single day if you choose to. And it was a lot harder back then than it is now, (laughs) but the same principles apply because human nature doesn't change. Being nice doesn't change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Connecting with humans doesn't change. Just the medium does. Asking questions doesn't change. She did her research. She was using the internet for research before anyone was using the internet for research. Mm. Yeah. Incredible. So that experience, obviously it had a tremendous impact on you as far as your career goes, how you promote artists and what you're doing today. So tell us a little bit how you transitioned uh, from what you were doing then into what you're doing now. Obviously, with I'd love to hear about the virtual tip jar and music industry blueprint, all the things that you have going right now to help you know, hundreds, if not thousands of artists reach billions of people every single sure. day. So 2007 was a very interesting year for me because I'd never been a manager before. I spent a lot of time on the road. I would drive from Santa Barbara to LA, catch a plane, land in Nashville, catch a bus, and we would tour. And then I'd come home for a couple of days and do it again. In 2007, I was gone 187 days had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I had been on salary for the first two years and was getting ready to transition to a commission. And managers make 15% of what the artists make. So in 2008, I was instantly going to become a millionaire. And once again, I got on my knees and I said, okay, God, what's the plan here? Is this a test? I'm going to see more money than I've ever seen in my life, but is it going to go out in alimony and child support? Now, growing up poor, I never made decisions based on money because we never had it. And I decided that my kids, my wife meant everything to me. And I decided to go ahead and walk from Taylor. So I called her up, I gave her my notice, and I walked away from that, not realizing the doors that it was going to open. So immediately upon leaving Taylor, I was contacted by Sony Records here in Nashville and Joe Galani brought me to lunch. And he said, listen, not to take anything away from anyone, but my team saw what you did. We saw the way you worked with her. We saw the way that you trained her. He said, we'd love to offer you a job as a consultant. And I'm like, fantastic. I excused myself. I went back to the restroom. I called my wife 
in Santa Barbara. This is 2008. And I'm like, go on Yahoo and type in, what does a consultant do? I said, I'm being offered this job and I have no idea (laughs) what it does. And she said, well, it looks like they get paid really well and they advise in areas of expertise. So I went back and I accepted this position and I was a marketing and artist development consultant for Sony Music. And I was the guy on the calls that no one really knew was on the calls. And I'd create these marketing plans. And all I kept seeing at that time was all these dads marching their daughters into Nashville in sundresses and cowboy boots, thinking that was the magic formula with a blank check wanting me to make their daughters the next Taylor Swift. A lot of them coming down from Kentucky, coming over from Georgia, the I'm Texas sure. soil dads. Yeah, they were all in because they figured they had a teenager that wrote songs. So that's all it took. Right. What I realized at that time was that there was no chamber of commerce for the music industry. And it was the wild, wild west. And a lot of people were getting taken advantage of. And I was watching what the labels were doing. And I was getting very frustrated with what was happening. And I decided that I wanted to become the chamber of commerce for the music industry. I read a book by Brennan Burchard called The Millionaire Messenger. And it said, make a difference and make a living sharing your knowledge and experience with others. And I was in. I felt that that's what I wanted to be able to do. I wanted to help people all over the world. I had access to experts that I could record and bring in and interview and and do things like that. And I remember the first time a gentleman that I go to church with, he came, he says, have you ever heard of this guy, Jeff Walker? I said, no. He says, you need to find Jeff Walker. He has this thing called the product launch formula. So I went, looked up Jeff Walker, watched his first video, and I'm ready with a credit card. I go, oh my gosh, that's what I can use to get my information out there. And there was no place for me to purchase. So I reach out to his customer service team. I said, by the way, great video, but you guys forgot to put a purchase link on the video and you didn't put a purchase link inside the email. And they're like, okay, thank you, Mr. Barker. Enjoy the next video. And the next video comes out and I'm ready to buy. I'm sitting there with my credit card and son of a gun, no way to buy. I didn't realize I was caught in a product launch and they don't let you buy until the fourth day. So I'm like, screw you, Jeff Walker. And that's when I found out about Brendan and I signed up for Brendan's list. And the next thing you know, here comes a video and I'm like, all right, I'm caught in a damn product launch again. So (laughs) that's when I realized it's like, wow, you can give such amazing information and not have to get paid for it. And people will show up the next day to get more information. So I started doing that with social media and with Interesting things about the music industry, you know, five keys to success, the three things you should never do when approaching a publisher. And I just started putting all that content and all that information out there, and it just started catching on. People started sharing it. I ended up launching the music industry blueprint. My very first product launch went great. I went and bought Jeff Walker's program, Brendan Burchard's program. I went to High Performance Academy and product launch, came back and did everything that they told me to do. I hired a copywriter. I used a teleprompter. I got coached by everyone. And it was the absolute most awkward thing that I've ever done. And it still made money. And by just following instructions of those that knew better than me. And then once I was able to put my own twist on it and realize that I don't speak well from a teleprompter and it looks like I'm speaking from a teleprompter and using big fancy words from the best copywriters in the world didn't resonate with my audience and made me feel more like a salesperson, but I could take the model and adapt it to myself. That's when things started changing for me. Yeah, for sure. Well, you learn, you know, you steal from them, but you make it your own. I mean, it really, it's interesting. Your story probably mimics a lot of people in the internet marketing industry. For me personally, product launch formula was the first internet marketing product I ever actually bought. And I went through the same, when you're telling the story, I was chuckling the whole time. I'm like, I remember when the thing actually went on sale, I told my wife to be like at my laptop at home because I was at a you know, I worked for a Fortune 500 company. I'm like, get my credit card out and buy this thing. She's like, what the hell are you talking about? It was on the fourth day because I couldn't buy the days one through three. But And did uh, you set your alarm for the next morning so that when it absolutely went on sale at 9 a.m., you were one of the first 25 to get? I did that. I absolutely. was like, I'm, I'm going to be that guy. My wife's yeah. like, what are you getting up so early for? I said, I got I got to go spend 2000 bucks. <laughs> yeah, 2000 bucks. That's exactly. I think I set an alarm on my Trio or my Palm Pilot or something yes. like that. You know? but, but that's no. the power of providing value. Yeah. 
And that's what I took from that. And that's what I've always, it's like, because I asked, I said, well, if I give away my best stuff, what am I going to sell? And Brendan said, better stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean better stuff? I just gave away my best stuff. He said, is that all you got? I said, no. He says, correct. Right. And that's what's been so powerful for me. And now it's to be able to take that digital concept. I'm a serial course buyer. I mean, I look at something and I've got stacks of courses and I pull nuggets and then I go in and try to you know, teach them inside the music space. And that's where the virtual tip jar came in to effect is it was basically saying, treat each platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, like it's its own venue. So one of the things that was really interesting is when Facebook started Facebook Lives, I was able to do one of the first Facebook Lives with artists. I was actually working with American Idol at the time. And they said, here's this great tool. And I used it to help a kid win the show. He came in with the least number of followers, but he had the most active and engaged followers because he was doing Facebook Lives every night. So later on, we took it with an artist and we said, what if you were to go on and play your own music? And we created a virtual tip jar. We gave people the opportunity to give you money because that's what happens here in Nashville. If you've ever been to Nashville, you're on Broadway, people are playing, and then all of a sudden somebody walks around with the tip jar. People throw in the money. That's how they get paid. I said, what if we gave people a chance to pay you and show their appreciation? So we went and went to paypal.me and created our paypal.me account, and we called it a virtual tip jar. And the artist said, hey, if you want to help support me and continue, throw a little love in the bucket. And I met this gal, Dawn Byers, and Dawn, her first year doing Facebook Live, she did almost $73,000. And those tips turned into house concerts, turned into her being flown to Mexico to sing at weddings. And now she's almost up to $200,000 a year, three years later, by showing up every morning, doing coffee and country, spending about 30 minutes. She now has moved people into a paid private Facebook group. There's all these different opportunities that we have now to perform that we didn't have before. And Facebook rewards us for live video. So why not take advantage of it? So what I've been doing is, you know, taking what I learned from you guys, taking what I've learned from everybody. Subi Zimmerman, I met her at a Jeff Walker event, you know, taking all these experts, the Amy Porterfields, the Lewis House, the Ryan Levesque. So I have all these folks, I go and take their courses and then I bring that thought process back into the music industry. And that's what I mean when I say I want to affect millions of people with songs that I've never written or performed by teaching creatives how to use the tools that are available to them for free to get this stuff out there. Yeah. And that's why I love listening to you guys because I can go and learn how to run effective Facebook ads and I can tell someone, I can go ahead and amplify your message where in the old days you would have to have a song on the radio, it would have to be a hit, a promoter would have to like you, would have to put you on stage, and it would take you a year to meet 100,000 people I can get you in front of 100,000 people today by utilizing paid traffic. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like the power from your laptop. And we were talking about this earlier in the show and probably even before we started recording. It's like I was watching something from Ezra Firestone yesterday. He's like, how could a guy in a laptop in upstate New York be in front of at least four times in the last year, every female, every woman over 40 like at least four times, like he's looking at his stats. I'm like, every time I hear a statistic like that, I still, I'm like, oh my God, this is so amazing. You've got 2 billion active users on Facebook every single day, a billion users on Instagram. It's like, you've got one fifth or one seventh, depending on how you slice it, of the planet on these platforms. All you have to do is be able to connect with them. And it sounds like you're doing that through, Facebook Live, through connection, through understanding it's basically a digital format. It's the same thing as in the real world. It's still relationships that you build with people. And I think it's important to build those relationships in the language of the platform. And that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of people made mistakes as they treated them all the same and they're not. I just recently did a free plus shipping utilizing Instagram stories and Instagram Live. And what I did was, is I went in And I answered questions for an hour every single night. And then Instagram would kick me off and I would do it again. But what I realized at that point, and this was 
It was about December of last year. So I went in and for three days, I said, listen, if you've got questions, I'm going to be here answering questions. People would come on. I would bring them on. What I did at that time was it created instant lookalike audiences because their fans would then get notified that they were live. Instagram is the only platform that's going to push you to the front on whoever follows you and let people know Rick Barker's now going live. They would send a notification. If I bring you on, Molly, it will say Molly's fans will now be notified that Molly's going live. So now I put myself in front of Molly's audience and I was able to introduce myself. So all I did was answer questions for three days. And then on the fourth day, I said, hey, guys, I bought a box of these books. If you would like one, just simply pick up the shipping. And I launched them right into my click funnel situation. But what I did on the upsell is I offered coaching, exactly what I had been doing for those three days. So it was no surprise when they said, heck yeah, I want him to be able to answer my questions and help me. So I was able to sell 200 books in 48 hours. I was able to take a $4.71 you know, US shipping, $9.71 international and have a $30 cart value because people saw value in what it is that I did. So then all of a sudden people are coming to me going, what was your ad spend? I said, no, it was my time spend. I spent time providing value made an offer. The upsell was the value that I had shown them for those three days. And that's when I started telling people, it's like you can build brand and influence and awareness utilizing free tools. I mean, trust me, my goal in life is to get everyone to an ad agency as soon as they possibly can. But a lot of times when people are buying our courses, they're tapped out. So I was like, let me start showing them how to do a lot of this stuff organically. And then when something works organically, like what you guys teach, then go throw gasoline on the fire. You have a Facebook Live, you have an Instagram, you know, IGTV that's doing well. You can now throw dollars behind it and amplify what it is that you're doing. But right now, it's like provide value, value, value. That gives you credibility. I think one of you said it not too long ago, is it's almost like all traffic, if done the right way now, starts out warm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't start out cold because we have the ability to put our message in front of anyone. Totally. Yeah. So in this space, I mean, this is what Eugene Schwartz would say, a highly sophisticated space. There's a lot out there. There's a lot of, Mm -hmm. if you're a brand new, you got a lot of competition. You got a lot of noise. It's not even just other artists and other music. I mean, it's just distractions of life. How do you, in this strategy, how do you stick out in a crowded space, which is, I think, one of your real messages when you talk to artists and so forth. I'm going to be able to teach you how to do this and also simplify things so that it's not overly complicated. So how do you go about doing that? What's what's the key to that? It's the same thing that you guys teach every week. I listen to your show and every guest that I hear. Consistency. You have to show up every single day. You need to treat it like a job. And that was one of the hardest things was getting musicians, especially, to realize that it's more than just their music. Anyone can put music on the internet. My mother-in-law, who cannot sing, could launch a song on iTunes this afternoon if she chose to. So it's very noisy and it's very crowded. But when you show up consistently on a day-to-day basis and you bring value, one of the strategies that I teach, I have a webinar that I run called How to Become a Social Media Ninja in Under an Hour, because that's the biggest thing that I hear, not just from musicians, though, also from entrepreneurs, is I just don't have time to be on social media all the time. And I'm like, great, neither do I. But here's what we need to do. So I like to do what I call treat your social media like your meal plan. First off, realize that social media is an engagement tool. It's not a sales tool. Too often people are just jumping in for the first time. You know, look at me, buy from me, do for me, 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 me. And we're like, you know what? We don't really like our friends that are like that. Let's not be that artist. So What I try to tell them with the breakfast, the lunch, and the dinner is give them something for breakfast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Give them something for lunch. Give them something for dinner. First off, know your audience. So in the morning, I like to do motivational quotes. I like to do things that are uplifting. In the afternoon, we'll do an Instagram story. I'll find something that's trending, knowing as much about your client as you can. You know other things that they're interested in. We'll talk about movies that are coming out this week. And then at night, I provide some value and then lead them to something. I sell every day. 
I tell people every time I'm opening my mouth, I'm selling. I may not be asking you for the purchase at that point, but I'm building reciprocity and rapport and trying to create value. So when it is that I do. So that's one of the first things that we need to do is show up every day, treat it like a business. Second is we need to understand that I don't care if you've got the best hamburger stand in the world. If you open up that stand in a town of vegetarians, you screwed yourself. Too often, we're trying to make everyone like our stuff. We need to go find a hungry audience and feed them. We don't need everyone to be successful. That, I think, is super important as well. A lot of times, we'll put out things for the masses. One of the things that I encourage artists to do in the beginning is cover songs. And there's a lot of artists that are like, dude, I just want to do my original material. I don't want to do cover songs. And I'm like, dude, no one's searching for you. (laughs) They're looking for something that's familiar to them. So where a lot of artists and I think sometimes a lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm spending a lot more time in that space as well, is like we'll throw up a three or four minute video to a stranger and say, hey, watch this video and tell me what you think about it. And I'm like, okay, let's think about this for a second. I call Facebook the appointment social. You maybe check it before lunch, you check it before dinner, you check it in the morning, but you're not real in real time with it like we are with Instagram right now. So I'm like, okay, so here's what we need to do. Why don't we give them something that they understand? So why don't we do a 30-second video of something that interests them, have a very catchy cover? Because once they click play, I now have them. I can go back and have a different conversation with them later. You guys are not allowing people to click play because you're asking too much up front. So if I get 15 minutes for lunch and I'm scrolling down and you're asking for three and a half minutes of my time to watch a video of a complete stranger and give you my opinion on it, I'm scrolling right past you, which just told Facebook that I don't give a crap, so they're not going to show me the next one anyway. So we need to start doing things that people want to do. Let's start in 30-second increments. Let's start in 45-second increments. And then once we have something of value, I mean, I've got a nine and a half minute long video right now that I've spent $600 and I've had over 3,000 people watch 100% of it. I didn't make an offer. I just took a section of my webinar, the four social media platforms you should be on, and I wrote a really compelling ad. And then I was able to retarget them to give me their email to come sign up for the webinar on the second thing. So a lot of times we're trying to go in for the kill immediately. It's like, let's date first. You know, don't walk up to a stranger for the first time and ask them for things that we know they're not going to give us, or you wouldn't. Too often, I think we feel that, well, I wouldn't do that, but the fans will. No, they won't. They're just like us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you were to give like a one, two, three step formula for somebody that nobody knows who they are, they don't have a following. They probably have a Facebook and an Instagram page, and that's pretty much it. And they want to break into the music industry. One of the things I think when I was looking through a lot of your information is that music labels now, if you wanted to get signed by them, you have to create your own small business ahead of time, and then they help you to a certain degree. So how do you kind of get to that point? Like, what would you do first, second, third, in the context of the formula that you just described here? Sure. First things first is get the music right. It can't suck. Um, it's too competitive. It's, it's just, Sorry. it's way too competitive right now. Yeah. No amount of traffic will cure a crappy offer. Is that, uh, yeah, works in the music yeah. industry. That too. is your <laughs> offer, you know? And, and this, I think, relates to anyone, no matter what it is, is make sure that you've got quality. But what I like to encourage people to do first is go get involved in as many conversations as you possibly can. And then when the timing is right, bring up the fact that you've got a solution. What I mean by that is like, if you have an audience and they're young girls and go follow Forever 21, go find out what movies they're talking about, what books they're reading, get in the conversation. And then all of a sudden, when somebody says something, you can say, you know what? I was feeling the same way. And that's when I wrote this song. And then don't give them a link to the song. Let the other person come back and go, wait a minute, you're a songwriter? I would love to hear that song. Now, all of a sudden, it was their idea. Same thing, no matter what it is that you're offering, go get involved in as many conversations as you possibly can and provide value. Number two, show up every single day. Whether it's automated or not, you need to have a presence every single day. Because if I find you, one of the things that people forget sometimes, especially with music, is discovery, the SEO, no one's searching, Best country artist that's unsigned in Nashville, Tennessee. 
What happens is they discover you on a playlist on a television show. Then the next thing that happens is they are going to search for you on their weapon of choice. If it's a television show, it's probably Facebook. So if Facebook's not your jam, you better have a pin post inviting them to wherever it is that you hang out. Because what happens is when they go search for you, a lot of times we want to try to force them to where we're most active. It's out of our control. So we need to make sure that we have a presence. Now, I'm not saying spend all your time on Facebook, but pin a post that says, by the way, so glad you found me. Got a couple you know, songs I would love to send your way. And by the way, I hang out a lot on Instagram. Here's a link. Come follow me. But they need to find you wherever it is that they're at. So you need to have a presence on Twitter. You need to have a presence on Instagram. You need to have a presence on Facebook, YouTube, biggest search engine in the world. YouTube is killing it right now. And YouTube's going to continue to get bigger as more people are typing in the how-tos. For entrepreneurs, take advantage of LinkedIn right now. I mean, think about this. With your phone, you are your own media mogul. You've got your own television station, your own radio station, your own PR firm, your own photographer, your own videographer with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Start creating content that you think provides value. And when the opportunity is right, bring them into you. Bam. Rick, what for a music artist, I've always wondered this and we get this question sometimes like, what is a good offer to make to your cold or warm traffic? Obviously, you're wanting to build your following on social media. Are you looking to build an email list? Or like, Absolutely. What, what does that look like exactly? Absolutely. So the days of the downloads are over. A few years ago, uh, Billboard Magazine ran a story because I was offering seven free songs. And at that time, streaming wasn't available. And right. here's what's interesting. Getting a song and an email exchange isn't new. Rock bands have been doing it forever. What happened was no one taught these artists how to do proper email marketing. Mm. So they would never send anything out unless they had something to talk about. Or they would talk about you know a show in Philadelphia with a guy in Alabama who wasn't going <laughs> to go to Philadelphia. Right, so right. once we stopped downloading music, that was the first thing we did. So now what we try to offer and this is can be for anyone in the music space, in the entrepreneurial space, exclusive content, things that are not available behind the scenes. Everyone wants behind the curtain. So a lot of times what we'll say is, you know, we've got this great, and the key thing is not to use the word submit or subscribe. Every day I'm trying to unsubscribe from emails that I get. So asking people to subscribe is not a good thing. So we'll say things like this. I like now, instead of having a written bio on a website, I like having video. People listen through video. Hey, it's Rick Barker. Welcome to the site. And the best way to get to know me is through my music. What I'd love to do is I've got some exclusive songs that I would love to share with you. Just tell me where to send them. Just something simple, something Mm -hmm. easy. And then you send them and then you give them lyrics or pictures, but it has to be exclusive, something that they're not going to find on Spotify or SoundCloud. And then once you get that conversation, the next email should come out two hours, in my opinion, after you've delivered that just simply says, wanted to make sure you got your stuff, hit reply. Mm. That one secret that was shared with me at a marketing event is now whitelisted all those folks because now they've replied back and responded to an email. So my email service provider now gives that much better priority. That one little trick alone has allowed open rates. One of the things that I try to tell folks is stop sending newsletters. No one's really subscribing to newsletters. You know, artists would say things like, click here to subscribe to my newsletter. Well, you're not a news person. What are you going to tell me? You're not going to tell me anything. (laughs) You're going to tell me about a bunch of stuff that I really don't care about. So we've got to be able to give them exclusive material. We have to make sure that we're communicating with them at least one day a week. And I tell the artist this, Molly, outside of your music, your website, and your email list are the most important things to you because they're the only things that you own. You don't own Facebook. You don't own Instagram. You don't own. So, yeah, we want to get you to the email as quickly as possible. And then once we get you there, we want to teach you how to have those conversations to where totally. then you're a business owner. 
you should be getting a dollar a month from every name that's on your email list. You should be able to make offers. And I wonder this too, especially in 2019, obviously you're continuing to put value and content out there to keep them engaged. But what does the monetization side of things look like? You know, obviously trying to get them to come to shows and, you know, maybe purchase new music. I'm not sure. Like, what does that look like now? That is a fantastic question. And one of the things I tell artists is I said, congratulations, the internet won. As of today, no one will ever have to spend a dime to listen to your music. When they make an investment, they make an investment in you. So your job now is to build that relationship so that they want to support your cause. They're not going to Apple and downloading music anymore. We're in a streaming world. But what happens is as you, Chance the Rapper did it the best. So streaming, you get a listen for free. Grammys decided that now we're going to reward and count streams. He wins New Artist of the Year with a CD that was never physically released. It was all done through streaming. Now, here's the perception of what was great about this is everyone could get his music for free on SoundCloud. What he did was came out and said, I want you to have my music for free. He just worded it. While every other artist was saying, support music, download this. He's like, no, (laughs) go here. Here's my music for free. Because what he realized is that he's going to make more money on that number three hat that he can sell for $25 mm-hmm. than these kids streaming this music. So everyone mm-hmm. went out and streamed and said, Chance is awesome. He's given us his music. We don't have to pay for it. Well, you didn't have to pay for it before. You were just hearing the message from the messenger now. You were hearing it directly from him. So now if people are going to buy a ticket, support you. People are still buying physical CDs, but most of it's being done in bundling. Bundling's great because you can take a T-shirt, an autograph CD, you take lithograph and you print out the lyrics, you sign those, your cost of goods on all of that is about six bucks. You sell it for $40 and now you're making $34 per transaction versus someone going to iTunes for $5.99. There's money to be made. There's more money being made. It's in the touring and the merchandise right now, but that all starts with a relationship. Makes total sense. I saw a company, I forgot what they were called, on Shark Tank, and they got a deal on Shark Tank, but it was two women and they created a company to help with the merchandise aspects of all of this. But they were creating like cool bonus cover wraps for CDs and all types of stuff. So I figured that's what you were going to say, but I was just curious. Uh, really, you get as creative as you want. I did something with Trent Harmon, who was the last American Idol winner on Fox. And Trent came to me and Trent was in a position where he couldn't release music. He was in between contracts. He couldn't release a record. So what we did was we created... And you're going to laugh when I tell you everything that we did. We created a, a Zoom, a private show for only 100 people, and we sold it for $100. And what we did is we gave them access to the video. We stripped the audio off the video. He took PDF pictures of all of his lyrics. We let them create the set list. We put that set list on a T-shirt, and we gave all this stuff away. He made like $8,000 in an hour, never left the house by offering something exclusive at a higher ticket that not everyone could get. We took two tickets, did a contest, gave them away to some people. And then these fans all keep asking, when's the next one? When can we, it's like, when can we spend $100 with you again to get something that no one else can get access to? And we used all the tools that we're using right now. We use Zoom. We stripped the audio, which will end up becoming a podcast. He just created audio files. We put it in a Dropbox folder. So all these tools that were readily available to us generated $8,000 in an hour. And all he had to do was a couple social media posts and an email blast inviting people, showing some scarcity, and boom. There you Damn. go. It was yeah, done. Damn. Not much uh, different from what we talk about on the show. Huh? <laughs> no, and think about if he did 10 shows like that a year, that's $80,000. And that's what I tell people. A lot of time musicians... 
And a lot of times I think entrepreneurs forget this. If you can make fifty to $60,000 a year doing what it is that you love, you're making more than most teachers. You're making more than a lot of people that are going to a job that they hate every single day. And you have the ability. You go find a 1,000 people and give them an opportunity to spend $5 a month with you, and you've created a $60,000 a year business. Wow. So true. Well, Rick, this has been incredible. You are a great human, and your story is inspiring. Thank you so much for the knowledge that you shared today. Where can people find you? You can head on over to my website, rickbarker.com. That's B-A-R-K-E-R.com. While you're there, grab a free copy of my book, The $150,000 Music Degree. There is also a free training of how to become a social media ninja in under an hour. So there's an on-demand training there. Follow my podcast, the Music Industry Blueprint Podcast, comes out every Monday and Thursday. We talk about everything, not just music, but also about life in general. And I would love to connect with you on Instagram, at Rick Barker Music. Uh, If there's anything directly that you want to contact me, I have no problems giving you my email address. It's Rick at rickbarker.com. Awesome, guys. Thanks again, Rick. For any resources we mentioned in this show, head over to digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast, and we'll see you guys next week. See ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic. For more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. John Moran here. Q1 is closing and it probably didn't go as well as you'd hoped. I'm sure your agency is telling you that they crushed it, but in reality, it probably crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you, or if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what, go to tier11.com forward slash apply. That's tier11.com forward slash apply. And we'll get set up on a call to show you a better way to get your business, not just metrics that make agencies look good.